So if you have your Bible in your hand, uh, turn back to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We have been working our way through this Old Testament book of history about events that took place a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, almost 3,000 years ago from our perspective. But even though it's describing ancient events, they are events that, that speak to us today because it shows lessons about God, about humanity, about the, the patterns of, of God's work in redemptive history that lead all the way to Jesus and his work for us on the cross. Now today, as you'll see, it's a, it's a cliffhanger passage uh, that this would be part one of a, of a TV show at the end of this, this chapter. Uh, and, and since we'll be worshiping then with Crosspoint for the next uh, three weeks, uh, we'll do a, a, th- a three-week series on worship, community, and outreach for those three weeks. So you'll have to wait for the, the second part of the, the story, or you can read ahead in those coming weeks to know, to know what, what happens. But remember that up until this point in 1 Samuel, we've been focusing on Hannah, this ordinary woman who prayed to the Lord for a child, and the Lord gave a child, Samuel, who was then dedicated to the Lord's service. Then we looked at how he served at the the tabernacle in Shiloh, where Israel would worship, and that he was established as a prophet. Um, Jonathan uh, led us through the the text about the, the religious condition of Israel at this time that this was a dark time for the the spirituality of Israel. Uh, Because though the high priest was a a relatively godly man named Eli, he didn't restrain the wickedness of his sons who were priests, uh, and God promised judgment on the house of Eli. So that's where we are. But now we shift away from Samuel for a period in, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, and, and we come to, in a sense, the Ark of the Covenant as the central character, we could say. All right, so this is 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and you'll find this printed also in your bulletin, your order of worship. Now the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave, gave a mighty shout so that, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. There was a sort of, there was a very great slaughter of 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the men, the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now the daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas was pregnant, about to give birth. And when, when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, 
She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, we ask for spiritual guidance that you would Illuminate our hearts to understand marvelous things from your word. Lord, we pray that we can apply this ancient account of history to us, to our lives today, to understand who you are and how we can live as Christians and believers in Christ. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see the the setting of this text. The the great enemies of Israel come up from the south. The the Philistines, who you may remember from the book of Judges, these were the the enemies who confronted Samson. And Samson, um, the the great warrior of Israel, had defeated many of the, the Philistines in his life, driven them back from oppressing Israel. But now at this point, um, not that long after the time of Samson, uh, the Philistines had regrouped. They lived in the period between Israel, sorry, the the place between Israel and Egypt. And they were moving again to attack Israel in the north. And it says in the, the text that they camped at a place called Aphek, which most scholars believe is about eight miles east of modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel. And then the the people of God, the the people of Israel come, they line up for battle, and they fight. And you would think at first that because it's these unbelieving Gentiles fighting God's people, Israel, that God would give victory. But then something very shocking happens that they suffer a defeat on the field of battle. And the text says that 4,000 men died in the initial battle. You think about that, that's more than the number of people that died on 9-11. So this was a a massive loss of of human life on a a day of fighting. Then the text says that Israel regrouped, And then they they held a a council of war to to discuss what had happened. As we think about our our world today, uh, we fast forward 3,000 years. We recognize that the church is the people of God, uh, doesn't have an army, that that the church isn't a a nation state uh, that wields a sword or, or wages war. But there are still battles that the church faces. 
uh, that, that we, we can face battle as the, the people of God. And you could think about it in our context in, in connection to what is sometimes called the, the culture war. Uh, that we, we, You hear that, that language of, of culture war often in the media or in the church. And it's, it's not bad terminology. That in a sense there is a, a culture war in our society, a, a clash of ideas, a, class, a clash of competing understanding of humanity and morality and right and wrong and, and God. And often... Christians, especially in, in America, can, can feel a sense of defeat in the culture war. That, that you, you think of how at, at one time Christianity held a more of a, a dominant role in society. That Judeo-Christian morality was the assumed morality. That even if you were rejecting God, that you were rejecting the, the God of the Bible. But increasingly we've seen a, a society where Christianity loses sway and influence, where more and more young people walk away from the church and from organized religion, uh, that we see defeats in the culture war of ideas and, and morality. And then the question is, how, how do we respond? Well, look at how, how Israel responded to their military defeat in our text. They gathered their council of war, as I said, and they began by asking the, the, the right question in verse 3. Look there in your Bible. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So they have a, a theological worldview. They believe in God, that he is active in the world. So far, so good. And they're asking, why would God allow this to, to happen to us? And we often face that as well. That as you think about the, the cultural battle of ideas and morality, that when the church suffers a setback, we think, why could this happen? But though Israel asks the right question, they have the wrong response. Because look at what they do in verse 4, 3, and and four, in your Bible, they say, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant of God. And let's haul it out into battle against the Philistines. Now, you, you may remember the, the depiction of the, the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones. Um, and, and in some ways, that, that depiction is, is fairly accurate <laughs> in the sense that this is a, a sacred object, but you have to treat it with care. That, that the Bible is full of many examples of people suffering terrible consequences for, for mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember that this was this large box plated with gold that contained the, the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. It contained the, the manna that they had received in the desert. It had the, the staff of Aaron that had budded. And on top, there was uh, statues of seraphim. And sometimes the Ark of the Covenant is called the, the mercy seat. That symbolically, it was the seat of the, the holy God in the midst of his people. It was the, the throne of God. But it showed the distinction between Israel and 
the gods of the surrounding nations. Because the other nations had visible statues of their gods in visible form. But Israel's worship centered around this, this throne with nothing on it, that the throne of the invisible God of Israel dwelling in glory in the midst of his people. And it was viewed as so holy that it was placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle structure and then later in the temple. So holy that only the high priest could enter that space on the Day of Atonement. So holy that if you entered that space, it was only with the sacrifice and with blood, the sense of coming into the, the holy presence of God. But then look at what they do in our text. They say, we're going to take this object with us, carry it out to, to battle, and look at that, that very revealing comment in verse 3 where they said, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. That it's, it's clear that they're viewing God as an object, that you can somehow objectify and control God himself. One commentary I read called this a, a rabbit foot theology where you view God as in a superstitious way that you can manipulate God into doing what you want. You can treat God as an object and then he has to do what you want. There was no repentance from Israel. They didn't inquire of the Lord they didn't seek the Lord's face, but they moved immediately to, to action without consideration of the holy, loving, personal God of the Bible. But then we can do the same thing. We talked about culture war, where Christianity can feel like we are on the, the losing side in the, the cultural battle of ideas and morality. But then what do we do that instead of turning to the Lord in prayer, instead of repentance, self-examination, seeking the Lord's face, that we, we, we turn to the, the rabbit foot theology of Israel, this text. We think that we can put religious bumper stickers on our cars and that will make the difference. Or we, we can use religious platitudes or, or we can look to... Um, earthly politicians who may invoke the, the name of God for political purposes, but there's no sense of, of repentance and turning to the Lord and seeking his, his will in, in prayer, that, that we move into action, we move into strategic planning, thinking that somehow we ourselves can, can turn the tide of the culture, that we can win the battle based on our own strength and our own goodness, that, that we can manipulate God. We say, well, we're the church. Now, of course, God wants the church to succeed. Of course, he wants our values to, to win out in society. God is obligated to do what we want. So we follow the, the pattern of Israel in this text, thinking that we can wheel God out into our political battle to accomplish our ends for our purposes. Then look at what happened to Israel. They try to wheel God out into the battle, and they suffer a, a second devastating defeat. Now, before that defeat, 
the Philistines are scared that they hear this uproar that everyone in the camp of Israel is, is shouting, that they're, they're rejoicing. They think, now we're guaranteed to win because the ark of God has come among us. And it's, it's almost humorous how they recount the inner dialogue of the Philistines. This has never happened to us before. And, they, and then you can sense in the Hebrew that they misunderstand the, the nature of God, where they, they, they use uh, pronouns that are in the plural to refer to God, that they're, they're, they think that Israel is polytheistic, just like themselves, which is, of course, not a, 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 it's understandable considering that Israel had fallen into idolatry so much at this period that probably was accurate that they were worshiping many gods, but they didn't understand the monotheism of, of Israel. They also had a vague understanding of God's work in the past. They said, this is, these are the gods who defeated the Egyptians in the desert. Of course, he didn't defeat them in the desert. It was in Egypt and then in the, the Red Sea. So they, they have inaccurate information. But yet they get the idea, this is a powerful God of Israel. We know what this God has, has done. We're going to, to lose but then they, they managed to, to collect themselves and say, we're still going to go out and find. Take courage, O men of the Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews. So they said, despite this powerful God in the midst of the Israelites, we're still going to be brave and fight. And so they fight the second battle. And it says that the Philistines routed the Israelites. Over 30,000 Israelites are killed on the field of battle. And I, I was looking at casualty rates from different wars in American history. And this is the Afghanistan war times 10 in terms of casualty rate in one day, in one battle. This is comparable to, to many civil war battles to lose 30,000 men in one fight. But they were fighting with, with cannons and muskets, uh, but here with, with swords and slings and spears and shields and chariots, they lose 30,000 men. Massive slaughter. Then they flee away to report the loss of the battle. As we think about this, this would also have been a theological crisis for Israel. Why would God allow his own people to be defeated in this way? Why would he allow the, the priests of God to be killed in the field of battle? Why would he allow the Ark of the Covenant itself, this holy object of God, to be taken by unbelieving, idolatrous Philistines to be hauled into the temple of their God? That this would have seemed like a defeat of Yahweh, that the, the powerful God of Israel was not that powerful because he couldn't defeat the powerful Philistines in the field of battle. Where is God? Is God weak? Is God helpless before the Philistines? It's a theological crisis. What's happening? And that's where verse 12 to the end of the chapter sheds light on, on what is happening theologically here. That God is still completely in control because one of the stragglers from the army runs to Shiloh 
And he comes into this town, the center of Israelite worship at this point, and he reports that the terrible news, the, that the great loss of life, the defeat in battle, the death of the priests, the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that there is an uproar in the city that people are crying, they're, they're wailing. And we actually know from the historical record in the, the archaeological excavations that have been done at Shiloh that the, the city of Shiloh was burned to the ground right around this period in history. So presumably the Philistines moved on from that battle and leveled the city of Shiloh, a great loss of life. And, and we notice in the book of 1 Samuel that the, the, the tabernacle never goes back to Shiloh. The, the Ark of the Covenant never returns to that spot. And so they know that the, the, the carnage that is going to come on this town. So they're weeping and they're wailing. And the ineffectual high priest, Eli, who is in his 90s, is sitting, waiting for news. He hears the uproar. The messenger comes, reports the, the battle. And, and you still see how he has this mixed character. Because first they tell him the battle has been lost. His sons have been killed. But then it says that the ark of the Lord has been taken. And as soon as he hears about the ark of the Lord, he ignores the news about his own sons, but the ark of the Lord has been taken. And he's, he's deeply moved. He's distraught. He falls back and says that he was a heavy man and he broke his neck. It was the end of Eli. And then suddenly, all of the judgment that God had promised through his prophets on the house of Eli begins to unfold. His daughter-in-law goes into labor. She bears a, a child that, that she is a, a more observant theologian than even her husband or her father-in-law. That, that she says the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This, this complete contrast from Hannah a few chapters earlier rejoicing in the birth of her son to this poor woman with this threat of utter destruction from the Philistines, weeping over the loss of her husband, her father-in-law, and, and saying, glory has departed. So we learn then an important theological lesson from this today. We learn something about, about God, that God is far more concerned for the holiness of his people than for their outward success. That God is far more concerned for the holiness of his people than for their outward success. And this is true for us individually. That God is, is more concerned with your holiness and my holiness than, than our outward success. That yes, there's times where we're more like Job, where we suffer not because we've done something wrong, but the Lord is trying us and testing us. Sometimes suffering comes into our life because of our sin, because of our failure. But either way, the, the call is, is to, to look at our hearts, to examine our lives, to say, Lord, use this to, to deepen my self-examination, to, to deepen my sense of repentance, to, to deepen my my faith, that I wouldn't look simply for the change of my circumstances or some kind of outward victory, but the Lord, I want you to use this in my heart and in my life 
for your glory because I know, Lord, that you are far more concerned with my holiness than with my outward success. But that same principle applies to the church corporately as well. I've mentioned that concept of the culture war. What do we do when we experience cultural defeat where it seems like the church loses ground, where we're regrouping? How do we think about this as the people of God? Well, the the step is prayer, self-examination. Lord, forgive the church for the way that we have so often neglected marriages, that that our divorce rate is is so high. Lord, have mercy on the the church for the way that abuse can go unaddressed within the church. Lord, have mercy on us for the way that we so often dishonor your worship, for the the way that we treat the things of God so lightly, that we we value holiness so little, yet we still expect the, the outward blessing of God that the call is always to examine ourselves as the church to, and to rededicate ourselves constantly to first principles. Say, Lord, we want to live in repentance. We want to cultivate a heart of prayer. We want to have the, the word of God at the center of our, of our lives and our worship as the church. We want to dedicate ourselves to the ordinary means that God has given to strengthen his people. We want to to worship him, to worship him as he is commanded in in scripture, that that we we want to respond not by, by anger, not by seeking to muster God for our own purposes, but constantly to live in repentance, faith, and holiness being deepened in all the suffering that God brings into our lives. But then as we wrap all of this up today, we can draw a connection between the Ark of the Covenant that we see here in this text um, and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you fast forward 2,000 years from this period, or sorry, 1,000 years from this period to the time of Jesus. Because we said that the Ark of the Covenant was this visible picture of God dwelling in the midst of his people. But in John chapter 1, it says that the eternal word of God became flesh and he tabernacled among us, that that he dwelt among us, that that he was the presence of God, not just the symbolic presence of God like the Ark of the Covenant, but the real presence of God is truly man and truly God in the midst of his people. And just as Israel couldn't understand why God would allow the the outward defeat of his people and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. So no one could understand why God would allow Jesus, the Son of God, to be handed over to the, the nations, to the Roman Empire, to be crucified, to be beaten, to be abused. Just as they said, How, this is the defeat of God. So on the cross, people would have said, this is the defeat of the Son of God, that that God must not be powerful enough to defend his own Son. But we said that God is is far more concerned for the holiness of his people than for their outward success. But he was also far more concerned for the holiness of his people than for the outward success of his own Son. That's why he sent Jesus to suffer, to die in our place, to take the punishment that, 
that we deserve so that all of our sin, all of our objectification of God, all the ways that we follow the sinful patterns of Israel, all of that can be counted to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness can be counted to us that we can experience forgiveness and life and peace in Jesus through the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the resurrection life of Jesus that is at work among us. Lord, we, we admit that we so often want to use you to accomplish our own ends, uh, that we, we want political influence or political power. We want our lives to be successful and healthy. We want to, to do well in our, our jobs. We want to be respected in, in society. We want to have outward success in our, in our churches. But so often, Lord, we, we want your blessings and your gifts, but we don't want you. Um, that we, we want the gift, not the giver. Um, and Lord, we, we see your heart for your people here, um, that, that you are willing to, to even seem like that, that the people of God are suffering defeat, if it means um, sanctifying and renewing and purifying your church and your people. Lord, we, we pray that you would do that work in us, Lord. As we, as we look at our, all of our external circumstances, that, that rather than thinking that we can do it, that we can fight the battles of this life by our own strength, um, that we will examine our lives, examine our hearts, that you will give us repentance as individuals, repentance as the church, faith in Jesus, the pursuit of Christ, that, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray this in Jesus' name.